Hello, and welcome to Clock Spinning, the podcast of Magic's history, as told, card by card. I'm Austin, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Connor. Connor, do you want to walk the listeners through today's topic? I would love to. So on today's episode, we're going to be talking about enchantments that cost seven mana or more. This is just pure enchantments. We're not going to be discussing any enchantment creatures. And this is also part two of our seven plus mana enchantment special. You can check out the older episode over on YouTube or on clockspinning.com or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. We're also going to be rating all of the enchantments we talk about using kind of the classic YouTuber categories of S to F tier. So S would be, you know, an auto include, uh, if you want to call it that. Um, and F would be, it kind of speaks for itself. Hatred. <laughs> cool. And if you want to follow along as we uh, talk about all the cards today, uh, there will be a link down in the show notes. Or, or if you watch on YouTube, uh, we'll throw up an image of each card as we get to it. At the end of this, I think all of our listeners will be thoroughly educated on all the really expensive, probably unplayable enchantments in Magic. More than you ever wanted to know. All right. Should we dive into it, Connor? Let's do it. Okay, let's uh, let's get things started with Baneful Omen. This is four BBB for an enchantment um, from Rise of the Eldrazi. It says, at the beginning of your end step, you may reveal the top card of your library. If you do, each opponent loses life equal to that card's converted mana cost. And then the flavor text, uh, which I really enjoy here, is, ah, again, it does not bode well for you. Hmm. So this is a a really fun idea of a card to me i i love this sort of concept of a, of a deck that is somehow controlling the card that's on top of the library to make the baneful omen cause a bunch of life loss every single turn uh of course and this says each opponent so in commander that could mean you know inflicting a lot of pain on a lot of people it's hard to imagine how that deck actually comes together yeah, it's. Uh, I feel like the uh, cost in terms of setup and deck construction here isn't really worth the, um, and of course the mana cost of this card isn't really worth the effect, um, but it is a fun card. Uh, this is pretty early. This is like, what, maybe like 2010 or something like this. I feel like this is a, when is, let me actually check the date here. Uh, I think yeah, it is 2010. 2010. Um, this is a 2010 card that uh, makes two interesting concessions to multiplayer, and I think it must be one of the earliest cards to do this. One, it says each opponent. Uh, which, of course, is, a, I think, an early concession to Commander. Uh, but then, two, I also like that this triggers on end step. You know, it's an acknowledgement that when you drop a seven-mana enchantment, like, making you wait a whole ter- set of turn cycles, especially in a multiplayer format, is, like, not... I don't know if fair is quite the right word, but it's not really viable. Uh, and so even though this card is probably not viable, uh, I still enjoy that they are, there's this little uh, hint of the coming commander design space. Well, I say enjoy. That's not my favorite design space, but it's interesting, I guess. That's a great point about this triggering on the end step because there are actually a pretty good number of cards that we're going to talk about later in the episode that don't do that and are made significantly worse by having to wait, you know, at least one turn in a 1v1 game up to three other people's turns in a commander game. Yeah, it's a it's a fun card. I, I also like the art here. It's not exactly my style, but it, to me, this feels like kind of the last of the like Odyssey onslaught kind of era of magic art where everybody is like, really ripped um, and the clothes are all super over the top and everything is contrasty and brooding. Uh, so it's not exactly my cup of tea. I, I, there's a little bit of a nostalgic quality to the art here that I enjoy. There's there's something about the guy in the art who I guess is a mer guy, a merfolk 
something about this art just makes him look really gigantic to me. I don't know why. That I is. keep thinking that too. Why is that? Yeah, maybe it's the the lighting. Like it looks like you know he's casting this huge shadow. I, I don't think he's supposed to be. Maybe it's that it's really zoomed in, creates a sense of overwhelming scale. Yeah, while I was reviewing, I kept staring at this card and thinking, like, something about it makes him look like 50 feet tall. Uh, and I think it's the, like, low perspective. And I also think maybe it's the seven mana cost. <laughs> like, somehow that just feels <laughs> like it should be big. I don't yeah, know. I think that factors in. So I did come across, actually, a, a pretty confusing EDH deck that, as far as I could tell, is trying to put super expensive cards on top of the deck for maximum baneful omen value. Um, That's commitment. The commander of that deck is Iname is one, which is a, a huge 12 mana black green Kami from Kamigawa. Not a great card, but has a huge mana cost. And I, I guess the idea of the deck is that you keep you keep trying to get Iname or some other huge card back on top of your deck from your graveyard or from the battlefield, and then keep baneful omening. Yeah, and also like uh the one of the highest synergy commanders for this is the new Hidatsugu, Hidatsugu Devouring Chaos, who also exiles things from the top of the library. Um well I guess this is an exile, but takes the top of your library and turns it into damage based on mana value. So we're gonna see a lot of cards here that surprisingly see play with commander or uh Kamigawa cards, which matters, I guess, only to us as people who've been doing a Kamigawa set review for almost a year. But uh still it's uh, it's fun. Yeah. I'm I'm sure it matters to at least uh one other person out there. So Connor, where on that S to F scale do you uh, do you rate Baneful Omen? Sadly, Baneful Omen has got to be a D for me. I, I like the idea of it, but it's just so hard to see this being anything good in any kind of consistent way. Yeah, I had a C, but I actually think that was just because it's the start of an episode and that always puts me in more of a generous mood. I, I think this is like a D. I, I'm with you on that. It's just, I just don't think it does enough to be worth um, the investment. Yeah. I feel like almost certainly today this card would scry every turn. It would maybe draw you cards. You would gain like you would either get some ability to manipulate the deck for free out of it or you just get some other advantage. I'm not saying it should be that way, but I, I do think that's how it would be today. Yeah. Or it might be six and a B instead of four BBB. <laughs> yeah, but there is something about triple black mana symbols in particular that's just iconic. It, yeah, there really is. And apparently something about it that makes... Uh, the subjects of the art look really gigantic. Mm -hmm. All right. D for Baneful Omen. D it is. All right. Let's go to Cruel Reality. 5BB for an enchantment aura curse enchant player. At the beginning of enchanted player's upkeep, that player sacrifices a creature or planeswalker. If the player can't, he or she loses five life. In the flavor text, as Gideon watched the initiate murder his cropmate, his admiration of the city of Noctamun gave way to horror. Uh, I have this at an A tier. I'm just going to get the rating uh, right out front. Exhaustive analysis of past clock spinning episodes will reveal that all curses are S tier. This I I said it, they're all S tier. This one I think is an A tier because while it's super, super cool, it is extremely, extremely slow. Um, that said, it does provide a, a kind of unstoppable inevitability, particularly in a 1v1 setting. Like your opponent really can't take that many hits off this before they're going to have to start losing life or otherwise get priced out of the game unless they're running like a tokens or serious go wide strategy. Uh, so I, I really like this card. I don't think it's an amazing card, but I do think it's extremely fun. Yeah, I, I, I like this card in a way, and I love a good curse. But I feel like I just I can't really get behind cruel reality because it's 
as you say, just so slow. Like in in EDH, this this is a curse. So it enchants a player. It only targets one person. Mm-hmm. So you're you're having to pick only one target for your seven mana enchantment in the EDH setting. And in a one v one setting, against against a certain type of deck that doesn't have creatures or planeswalkers, I guess, to sacrifice to cruel reality, this is a real clock. But if they if they have anything at all to create some creatures, like one a turn, then cruel cruel reality does literally nothing. Yeah, but I, f- I see that's where I think like you may be. Well, what's your rating, Connor? I want to see how far apart we are. I mean, I've got this at an E. E, come on, this is it's just, isn't just the fact it's a cool curse get it above an E. <sighs> I mean that that almost drops it a little bit lower for me because I want it to be <laughs> I want it to be better. I want it to do more. But a lot of curses are bad. The cool part is that it's a curse. That that alone is cool. Just the that word. Yeah, you're cursing another, and you get to enchant a player. I mean, that's just, it's like the mind slaver text. It still it still blows my little Timmy mind from like 2003 that you can enchant a player. That's just cool. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I don't know. See, I I feel like if I think of this in just a one v one, especially casual context, it's a fun card. Like I think this has been in multiple against the odds episodes, and this is like the most against the oddsy card everywhere and like ever. It just inspires you to want to build a deck around it and make something out of it. Okay, so I guess the the card that comes to mind for me to compare this to is Painful Quandary, uh, mm. which you is want to read that one out. Scars of Mirrodin uh, and was reprinted in the Brothers War. So Painful Quandary is three BB for an enchantment. Whenever an opponent casts a spell, that player loses five life unless they discard a card. So Painful Quandary is two mana cheaper. It triggers every time any opponent casts a spell, mm. and it forces <laughs> them to lose life unless they discard a card. Um. You know, that sounds a little bit better, but that's so, a Brothers War card. You know, that's a lot more Well, it was the Scars of Mirrodin <laughs> card originally. Uh, okay. All right. Free Cruel Reality. All right. Uh, I feel like I got to just concede that one. I still am not willing to go all the way down to your abysmal rating, though. I mean, to be clear, I still don't think Painful Quandry is, is all that great. Yeah. You're saying this is worse than a card I forgot about from Scars of Mirrodin. Right. And yeah. that was that was just reprinted uh, under your nose. Okay, well, uh, but before we get to final ratings, I wanted to talk a little bit about the flavor of this card. So one thing is, as someone on Reddit pointed out, there is no way uh, that like two normal looking dudes could hold back Gideon long enough for someone to be murdered in front of him. Like that just irritates me from a flavor perspective. (laughs) And then second, this made me wonder... Um, what are, uh, crop mates in Amonkhet? Cause I, I wasn't super up on Amonkhet flavor. So crops, uh, I'm quoting the magic wiki here. Crops are social units among the population of Amonkhet. They are composed of teams of up to 20 persons that undergo the trials of the five gods together. So there you go. Um, and in that same article, I learned, this has nothing to do with this card. I just thought it was weird that on Amonkhet quote, the plane is orbited by two suns that shroud the plane in perpetual daylight with ac- without actual nights. So one, I don't think you could say shroud the plane for perpetual daylight. But two, I thought that was really interesting that Amonkhet doesn't have knights, even though it's got a kind of horror undertone as a plane. I, I guess I'd never conscious or never noticed that before. That's an interesting little Amonkhet trivia. Yeah, especially since Cruel Reality looks like it's taking place at night. Yeah, I guess they're like inside some temple. Well, there's a lot of light flooding in from uh, the top left. Yeah, that's true. What do you think of the art here? I feel like the art here is uh, burdened by needing to depict a very specific story moment and as a result is kind of stiff looking. Yeah. Uh, well, it is a story spotlight. So you got to spotlight that 
Gideon's story, but I spent a solid four minutes trying to find the story spotlight. And uh, let me tell you, if you go to MTG story today, there is nothing that expedites your journey to this story moment. <laughs> I believe that. Yeah. The bit rod is real. Uh, okay. Final rating, Connor. How, how, I guess, how high can I get you? Can, can you go to like a B? Is that too much to ask? I feel, I feel like a C is reasonable. <sighs> That's you're coming down two letters. I'm going up two. It's it's the letter that this card starts with. C uh, for know, reality. C you're for just curse. you're so wrong. Fine, fine. C, <laughs> I have so fine. many reasons. All right, C. Okay, I think we will agree a little more on this next one. This is Grave Betrayal. Five BB for an enchantment from Theros, I believe. Return to Ravnica. Oh, return to Ravnica. Don't worry, we'll fix it in post, but not really. All right. <laughs> Whenever a creature you don't control dies, return it to the battlefield under your control with an additional plus one, plus one counter on it at the beginning of the next end step. That creature is a black zombie in addition to its other colors and types. So whenever a creature that isn't yours dies, you get it back as a stronger zombie. I really like that you have this big Timmy effect of getting creatures back and making them bigger. It appears on this giant seven mana enchantment and the art features a huge zombie dragon. It all just kind of comes together for me. I am totally with you, especially on the art part. We spent a lot of our break playing uh, Heroes of Might and Magic 3, and there were several pieces of art in this uh, set that made me, or in this uh, group of cards that made me think of it. But this one, like, I just look at it, I'm like, yes, Necropolis Faction from Hom 3. Let's go. <laughs> like, this is just, it's a cool, big, splashy effect. It's got cool art. Uh, it's also kind of basic in a way I like. Like, it doesn't do seven things. It just does one thing that's easy to understand. Like, brings back everything that dies as a zombie that's bigger. And that's, I mean, the thing it does is really cool. I don't think this card is amazing by any means, but it's just super fun. Again, it's uh, it's an enchantment that, you know, has a trigger at the end step instead of beginning of upkeep. So it's a little more relevant if you're able to trade some things with your opponent or, or force them. If you if you somehow have mana after Grave Betrayal, uh, destroy some creature that your opponent controls. I often like to slag on Commander on the show, but this is a card, one of those rare cards that makes me glad for Commander because I don't think this card is really good enough or really works in 1v1 magic, right? Like when you're drop, this is a thing we struggled with all throughout these seven mana uh, enchantments is that like when you're dropping seven mana on a thing, you really need to know that the game is going to be one for you. And uh, you just don't know that here, right? Like if your opponent is going to kill you before turn seven, or if your opponent doesn't care about creatures, um, this card is bad, like really bad. But in commander, like this is basically always relevant. It's always cool. I don't think it puts that big a target on your back. I'm not sure. I've never really seen this in play, but I don't feel like this is a, oh man, this person's running away with the game kind of card. It's just like a great balanced, fun card. Yeah, totally agree. And it is pretty popular in EDH. And as you say, not it doesn't feel like it's specifically designed for it, which I really love. Uh, it's particularly popular with commanders that kind of kill a lot of things, obviously, uh, like Hirobi Death's Whale, um, a card we've talked about before that kills anything that is targeted, any creature that's targeted by a spell or ability. Um, Toxril, the big slug legendary creature that puts slime counters on your opponent's creatures and gradually kills them with minus one, minus one counters. That's really fun with Great Betrayal. Um, or with commanders that force opponents to sacrifice creatures like Thraxamundar. So a lot of cool things you can do with Great Betrayal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I also saw it appears uh, commonly in uh, Massacre Girl decks, which is a lot of fun. I've always loved that card for Cube and any format, really. 
um, and just shows up. Uh, this is just a fun card that just shows up with other fun cards like Ruinous Ultimatum, uh, which just destroys all non-land permanents your opponent's control, or Riveteer's Ascendancy that like enables even more kind of sacrifice recursion shenanigans. Um, yeah, just a just a super fun card. Oh, mm-hmm. and uh, we haven't mentioned the name. The name here is great, right? Grave Betrayal. Like that's pretty good. <laughs> that is pretty good. I wish they'd had some room for some snarky flavor text on there. Yeah, that's that is too bad. Uh, where do you rate this? I give this like a solid A. It's not quite to S tier, but it's just just a super cool card. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much where I'm at. A. Boom. Okay, let's go to Hedonist's Trove. That is super hard to say. Hedonist's Trove is 5 BB for an enchantment. When Hedonist's Trove enters the battlefield, exile all cards from target opponent's graveyard. You may play land cards exiled with Hedonist's Trove. You may cast non-land cards exiled with Hedonist Trove. You can't cast more than one spell this way each turn. Okay, so uh, I think this is a discussion in two parts. The art on this card is amazing, but I want to get to that in a second. While the re- uh, listener is pulling it up, let me just talk about the card. The card here, I think, is honestly quite disappointing. It's a cool idea. It's basically like a Yogmoth's will for your opponent's graveyard. But man, does it come with a lot of caveats. It's seven mana, which is insane. Um, and of course, you're limited to one card from their graveyard a turn, which honestly, I don't really get. I feel like by the time you're dropping this gigantic enchantment, like why not let you just run through your opponent's whole graveyard? Like I, I, it's not even your graveyard, right? Like part of the problem with Yagmas will is you build a deck around it uh, and break it in half. But this uh, doesn't work on your own graveyard. So that's really not a risk with this card. Um, a lot of other black cards like this let you spend mana as though it were mana of any color to cast those spells. This doesn't let that you do that either. Like this card just feels so safe that I think it's uh, essentially irrelevant in any format, even though it's a, a pretty cool card. Yeah, I, uh, casting as though the card was paid with mana of any color was something that I didn't notice or think about. I feel like that happens to me all the time when I'm reading cards that let you cast things. Is like I just noticed it now. I was like, wait a second, I may not even be able to like, pay hold for on, them. especially in Commander with color and identity rules. Yeah, it just it feels like you should be able to anytime you're you know casting something that was your opponent's card, and then you realize, oh wait, that just doesn't work. Yeah, I, I agree that it is a really cool card in theory, but one that I don't think really gets anywhere, especially with that color limitation. I was thinking at first, you know, it mentioned specifically you may play land cards exiled with heat in this trove. And I was trying to think, well, is there some way that, you know, this lets you cheat a bunch of mana so that you could cast everything in there? No, not really. I guess that does get you closer to having the colors that you need to cast your opponent's spells, but then... There needs to be some way that those lands actually got into the graveyard. So there's all these all these other things that need to come together for Hedonist Trove to really do much of anything. And I think even by turn seven or whenever you have the mana to cast this, I don't think the, those conditions are going to line up. Yeah, I I think this card just, at least on playability, like straight up doesn't get there. Like, I think there's just way too many things working against it. Um, Actually, one of the top uh, results on Reddit for this card, when you just like search Reddit for this card name, is a post from the EDH subreddit titled, What Pet Card of Yours Never Quite Makes the Cut? Which uh, seems about right. <laughs> oh. Um, Let's talk about the art, though, here. Do you, do you want to try to describe it, Connor? I think you, uh, you noticed that dragon in the background of this art is Silumgar, and he's just kind of reveling in all this this gold and swag that he's got in this trove uh and is staring with glee at a giant dragon skull it's not really clear who that skull used to belong to um or why Silumgar is so happy about it but uh it's just a really 
like evocative piece that's full of like this bright gold color offset by these deep shadows. Uh, there's this glow kind of coming up off of all the treasure and these two attendants, I guess, who are uh, just kind of presenting all this all this booty to Silumgar. Yeah, it's uh, it's almost entirely gold. Like there's a couple of blue gemstones amidst the treasure, and then Silumgar's eyes are sort of blue white. But every other color in this is some shade of gold, and I just really like it. It's um, it's super technically well executed. It's a really unusual kind of piece. Um, it's just really striking. I, I really love this art. It kind of made me think of like that uh, painting motif, like Renaissance painting motif of like paintings of Salome from the Bible uh, holding the head of John the Baptist, uh, which then sent me down a rabbit hole of like Wicked, uh, Wikimedia Commons uh, paintings of Salome holding John the Baptist, which I'll put in the show notes for anyone who cares. Uh, but yeah, it's something about like this head being presented to Salomgar really like amps up Salomgar's like greedy evil uh, in a way I love. It does. That is a deep cut. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's deep even for clock spinning. Uh, yeah, I, I gave this an E rating, like one above F, just because I felt like the art deserves some credit. Uh, apart from that, this card is a swing and a miss for me. I just can't imagine, I can't imagine really any situation where this card is not even good, like does something. And that that's that's disappointing. I gave it a D, but the more we talk about it, the more I feel like it should be E or F. Maybe maybe the art lifts it to an E. All right, let's give our let's give her an E. It it an E. All right. E for the trove. Okay, next up we've got Price of Knowledge, 6B, for an enchantment. Players have no maximum hand size. At the beginning of each opponent's upkeep, Price of Knowledge deals damage to that player equal to the number of cards in that player's hand. I got a lot of love for this card for one reason and one reason only, and that is Cezanne, Perverter of Truth. Uh... <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> we uh, we recently, I guess not that recently, somewhat recently played a, a commander game where Cezanne was my commander and the goal was basically to uh, force your opponents to draw as many cards as possible uh, with Cezanne, which um, causes each player to lose two life and draw two additional cards at the beginning of their upkeep. And then cards like Price of Knowledge or Iron Maiden or Black Vice or all kinds of other cards like this punish your opponents for having too many cards in their hand. Price of Knowledge fits into that perfectly because it removes the maximum hand size limitation. It keeps your opponents from discarding down to seven uh, and avoiding crazy damage from Price of Knowledge. And it's just uh, like a, a perfect card for that. It's Iron Maiden on steroids with no minimum hand size for it to turn on. I feel like if this sticks in the right deck, which is basically Cezanne, then it's a serious clock. All right, I can be persuaded on that. I, I wasn't too high on this card, maybe just because I don't have a, a Saison uh, commander deck, and therefore this card uh, did not jump to mind for me. Um, for me, I, I kind of want this card to do a little more on its own to turn things on. Um, although I guess since it uh, deals damage based on the number of cards in the player's hand with n no kind of minimum number of cards needed to deal damage or something like that, uh, you know, I guess this card's pretty, pretty decent. I don't know, something about it left me a little bit uh, cold. I guess there's like this interesting contrast where the first line sort of um, sort of uh, implies this temptation, you know, like the price of knowledge, you know, people have no maximum hand size are going to be tempted to evade things. But then like the maximum hand size thing just comes for free in most EDH decks through like Reliquary Tower. Uh, I, I guess I kind of want this card to like give your opponent 
I, it's not a flaw in this card, but I think an interest there would be an interesting spin on this card that gives your opponent the option, sort of, to like go dip into the well and and taste some forbidden knowledge in exchange for taking on some risk. Yeah, I kind of like that idea. I I do also just like having the no maximum hand size as a way to, um, I, I guess get get around your opponent destroying their own reliquary tower or something. <laughs> it's a bit of a stretch. Got him. <laughs> I will say, after all that, I don't think this is a very good card. In fact, it did nothing in our own EDH game with Seizen because uh, two of the other decks in that game were green. And a card like this is not going to stick around very long uh, when there's two green players. Yeah, I, I don't know. Where, where did you rate this thing? So I've got it at an A. I... I really enjoy it, mostly because I like the idea of this kind of uh, deck with a, you know, totally out of left field kind of win condition. Yeah, I I had a D, which might be harsh. I, I feel like A is a little high for something this niche to me. Like, what what do you think about like a B? Uh, yeah, B seems fine. I mean, if that hurts you, I'm willing to go to an A, Connor. No, we can uh, we can go to a B. And speaking of hurting, uh, the art on this is pretty Oof. painful to look at. I know it's really it's kind of. Even though it's not that gory, you know, it's not like um, uh, it's not like ad nauseum or something, right? Where it's just like utterly horrifying. But then uh, there's there's a lot of blood. There's there's some missing eyeballs. There's one eyeball and a hand. I guess it is actually pretty gory. <laughs> it's super freaky. <laughs> there's a lot of blood here. Yeah. See, that's where I feel like there's a slight mismatch of like, you know, uh, did, did your opponent access hidden knowledge by just what drawing for turn and not casting something i just think there's there's like a a hit a missing element that would have made the design really sing for me well us Cezanne is giving them that forbidden <laughs> giving them the gift of taking their eyeballs out yes <laughs> and they have to pay uh all right let's call this a b all right all right that's it for black let's go to red form of the dragon four r r r enchantment at the beginning of your upkeep, Form of the Dragon deals 5 damage to any target. At the end of each turn, your life total becomes 5. Creatures without flying can't attack you. So to sum it all up, this turns you into a dragon. Like you become a 5-5, five, five, basically, that can't be attacked and that hits something for 5 every turn. Uh, it's, it's just a super cool card. Uh, so we started playing basically with the Scourge set. Um, this is one of the earliest rares I remember opening, and this card made such a huge impression on me. I was like, I, you know, I looked at it coming from other games like Pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh, and I thought, this game does things that, like, I've never seen before in any other game. I've Like, this card makes you into a dragon in a way that is simple from a rules perspective. Like, this card doesn't do anything that crazy, um, but it, like, instantly evokes this feeling of, like, yeah, I'm a dragon. I fly. I bl- breathe fire, but I'm a little bit more vulnerable than a planeswalker would be. Like, I just... I love this card. This is one of my uh, one of my all time favorite cards. I it it is truly iconic. I think there's something kind of magical almost about the way that the rules text on here is written. That you know, there's nothing in there saying you are becoming a dragon. Right. But you you read it, you realize, oh, I'm I'm dealing five damage. I'm I'm breathing fire. Oh my! But my life total becomes five because now I'm a dragon rather than some you know being of infinite power. Oh, and creatures without flying can't attack me because I have wings, because I'm a dragon. Yeah, it's it's just a super, super cool card. I'm actually surprised how rarely magic has returned to this well. So there's only four form of the type cards in the whole game. And uh, 
one of them is form of the dragon of course another one is form of the dinosaur which is frankly a, a kind of a a pretty weak imitator of this card and then the other two are unset cards so we have exactly as many cards like parodying this form of the such and such um uh, archetype of cards as we do actual form of the such and such uh, cards. Uh, one of the unset ones, I really didn't like Unfinity, but I do think it's very funny form of the approach of the second sun. Uh, if you haven't looked it up or if it passed you by, because there were a lot of cards released in 2022, check it out. Check it out. It's pretty funny. That is pretty great. I'm just looking at it for the first time here. <laughs> Isn't too. It great. It's got this goofy art and it, it turns you into approach of the second sun. Uh, so hats off to whoever designed that one. The one, I guess, knock against this card, which isn't really a knock against it for me, is it's it's not playable. I don't think it was really that playable back in the day. It's always been a fun, Timmy, kind of over-the-top card. But today, like paying seven mana and making yourself this vulnerable, I think just doesn't fly. I actually think this card could see like a basically functional reprint at like five mana or maybe six mana with less color intensity and be totally fine. Um, I, I'd love to see them actually kind of play with uh, this design space a little bit more. And I'm, I'm surprised there hasn't been more playing with it because the idea of turning the player into another another type of being is uh, seems like a pretty rich design space to go explore. Yeah, there's a lot of fun things they could do with that. This, this is actually the, I guess, sort of the first card where... Um, as we were discussing earlier, the the order of the triggers on this makes getting an actual win with Form of the Dragon pretty hard. <laughs> so yeah. uh, the damage dealing part of Form of the Dragon happens on your upkeep. The life total going to five part happens at the end of each turn, yours and your opponent's, um, which means that you get the downside of Form of the Dragon um, a long time <laughs> before you get the upside. And if your opponent has just five damage either direct damage or flying damage uh that they can bring at you before your next upkeep then uh for the dragon is just seven mana lose the game yeah it's interesting yeah i feel like maybe this could read at least today when form of the dragon enters the battlefield and at the beginning of your upkeep or something and i think that would be Mm. fine yeah yeah i mean that seems fair to me or even just to have i don't know if this would break something but to reverse these effects so that you get the damage at the end of your turn and then or just both them at the end of your turn yeah 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 huh um yeah it's uh one interesting quirk of this is this is one of these uh cards that sets your life total there's not a lot of these in the game um due to the like quirks of how the rules work when your life total is set you actually gain or lose the necessary amount of life to change your life total to that number so if you had some kind of edh card for example that triggers um off losing a bunch of life uh this thing will trigger uh for that amount so that's a kind of a cool niche use case i don't i don't know that there's too many ways to really abuse that in red but it's it's fun yeah that's kind of fun there are some other sort of fun combos that people have pointed out uh in old gatherer comments one is form of the dragon with phyrexian unlife and let me just pull that up actually because it's a little bit complicated so Phyrexian on life is a white enchantment that says you don't lose the game for having zero or less life. As long as you have zero or less life, all damage is dealt to you as though its source had infect. So Form of the Dragon with Phyrexian on life resets you back to five at the end of each turn. Uh, and unless your opponent can first get you down to zero and then deal enough damage past zero to fully infect you and cause you to lose the game that way. With flyers. Uh, you can just kind of keep going with flyers. Um, so that's kind of a fun one. Another less exciting one is Convalescent Care, which is another white enchantment that just gives you three life and a card if you have, I think, five life or less at the beginning of your turn. So 
some fun stuff with kind of like staying low on your life total. Yeah, it's a it's a cool card. Unfortunately, I don't think this has ever seen that much play anywhere in EDH. Uh, it does see some play, like eleven hundred decks, but they're almost all like Zedru or other donate themed decks, which makes me kind of sad as someone who loves this card. That the best use anyone's found for it is to give it away to your opponent and then kill the dragon. Yeah, and then kill the dragon. Oh, oh. Uh, but yeah, it's just just a super cool card. I have this as an S tier just because I, I have so many memories wrapped up in this. I couldn't, in good conscience, give it anything less. Yeah, same here. This has to be an S tier. Awesome. S for awesome. Next card, not so much for me. Uh, this is Vicious Shadows. 6R for an enchantment from Shards of Alara. Whenever a creature is put into a graveyard from play, you may have Vicious Shadows deal damage to target player equal to the number of cards in that player's hand. Um, flavor text says, Thrashes of the ancient past still linger in spirit and shadow desperate to sink their claws into our souls. Rakamar. So that's kind of cool flavor text. But I have always harbored sort of an irrational hatred for this card. I think mostly because it, for one, was a, a feel bad for me to open in a pack back in the day, but also because it just feels so low impact in a 1v1 game, which is all we were playing back then. At seven mana, I would much rather have a big dragon, maybe a form of the dragon, or just a dragon that does something <laughs> exciting as soon as I play it, or just is a dragon on the board. In a 1v1 game, a 7-mana enchantment like this doesn't feel like it's doing much where not very many things are dying. And especially in that 1v1 setting, the decks that are most likely to have a big hand, which Vicious Shadows punishes, the decks that are least likely to have very many creatures on the board most of the time, I, I would think. Yeah, I'm a little higher on this. I think mostly because I just read it as like big blood artists. Now, obviously, a big part of what blood artist does is uh, gain life. So I guess maybe it's big Zulaport cutthroat. Um, but to me, this is just a, a way to like really amp up a sacrifice deck's uh, damage uh, output. You know, pretty much always your opponent's going to have more than two or three cards in hand, at least in the EDH game. I think you can count on that pretty well. Uh, and I think the fact that this can hit any opponent and triggers on any creature dying, including token creatures, is pretty powerful. Like, seven mana is a lot. Uh, I guess I don't need to say that since every card we're talking about today is seven mana or more. But seven mana is a lot, and this can account for a really appreciable amount of damage. Like, if this is not answered pretty quickly in any deck that is running Vicious Shadows and knows how to generate and sacrifice creatures, this can like spool out a lot of damage very, very quickly. Yeah, I, I do think this gets more interesting in EDH. You know, like you mentioned, the fact that it triggers on any creature dying can be your own, can be any opponent's creature, and you can target any player with it makes it kind of a fun political card mm -hmm. uh, when you're deciding who you're going to target with the Vicious Shadows. It also makes me very happy that the two of the top commanders that Vicious Shadows appears with are Adamaro, First to Desire, who is a very strange and I think pretty bad spirit from Saviors of Kamigawa. We'll review him in just one to 12 months. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hang in there. He costs three mana and has power and toughness equal to the number of cards in the hand of the opponent with the most cards in hand. So no hmm. idea what that well, I, I mean, I know what that Mono deck's trying to do. Opponents having cards. <laughs> right. oh no idea. Gosh. No idea how that deck tries to get there. But I love that Adamaro is in the mix. Uh, and then another card that we have actually talked about relatively recently is Diaochan Artful Beauty, uh, who's a four mana one one covered on our special four mana one one red four mana one one episode. 
Um, and Diao Chen can tap once a turn before you attack to destroy any one creature, then an opponent destroys any one creature of their choice. So that, with Vicious Shadows, sounds like a lot more fun than this in a 1v1 setting. Yeah, I think this is this is very much a multiplayer card. Um, yeah, one of the things that's interesting about it is uh, the fact that it is political. Like, I, I think that's both a... There's some advantage there, right, in that you can kind of try to wheedle for um, wheedle and negotiate with your opponents for some concessions. But I think the flip side of it is this card paints a bit of a target on your back. Like not, I think because it's so good, but because I think you're consciously choosing someone to screw every time it triggers. Like, I feel like you're just slowly accruing like negative karma at the table. If you know what I mean? Like people are just like, Oh, you hit me with the vicious shadows. Well, I'm going to blot. Like even if the actual thing you're doing is pinging them for two, it just feel, it generates a lot of feel bads for your opponents. But that's part of the fun of Commander, right? Yeah, yeah, I guess so. I'm just not sure if it's the path to victory. Uh, but it's definitely, it would lead to an interesting game. So where uh, where do you land on Vicious Shadows? I have this at a B. Like to me, this is kind of an upper tier card among the ones we're talking about just because it's interesting. It does something unique. It's somewhat playable. I don't think it's like S or A tier. It's like, but it, it's a fun card. Yeah, I I had it as a D originally because of that irrational hatred that I have. But uh, I think I could come up to a B. I think another thing that holds it back from the, the upper echelons is like, there's nothing else remarkable about it. Like the art here is just like a generic fantasy lady standing in front of some shadows. Like there's just nothing about it um, that's particularly compelling. Yeah. All right, let's call it a B. All right. All right, that's it for red. Just two cards. Let's go to green. Colossification. 5GG for an enchantment aura from Ikoria enchant creature when colossification enters the battlefield tap enchanted creature enchanted creature gets plus 20 plus 20 and then the flavor text turns out the case of the flattened outpost and the case of the missing kitten were related endris draneth magistrate i I think uh 20 years ago i would have gone bananas over this card i would have seen plus 20 (laughs) plus 20 and i would have gotten tunnel vision and said 20 that's the amount of life your opponent has at the start of the game oh my gosh Wait a second. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know if I'm jaded or I've just seen too many magic cards or what, but like nowadays this like this gets a little bit of a smile from me, but to be I feel like I want to be higher on this card than I am. Like I think it's fun. I think it's a cute design. I love the pairing of the art and the flavor text here, but I don't know. This card doesn't excite me that much for I, I don't know. I, I feel guilty about that. Yeah, I'm, that's basically how I feel. I mean, it's cool to see plus 20 plus 20 on a card that's just an exciting to see it was a little bit like the first time that i saw dark depths from cold snap uh which yeah that's a 20 20 (laughs) creature you're like oh 20 and 20 it's just it's cool it's 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 cute but i i think more often than not classification probably ends up being seven mana tap a creature (laughs) without some way of kind of cheesing this card out or getting something else out of it it doesn't give trample it doesn't give any kind of protection to the creature it doesn't give any kind of evasion uh, it's just big stats for seven mana and you're tapping the creature. Yeah. I, I think we are in the minority here, Connor, as far as our sort of world weariness. Like this is one of the most popular cards on EDH rec that we've talked about today with 12,000 decks. So I think, I think this card has a real following and I can see why it's a cool Timmy ish card, but yeah, for me, it's, it's just, I don't know. It doesn't quite, doesn't quite hit the mark. Yeah. Uh, this is another one of those cards that kind of makes me hate color identity in commander. I, I know this is one of my things I, I like to rant about, but the best like aura colors are white 
and then to a lesser extent red and then blue. Uh, and this card is green. And so a lot of the cards that this would be most fun with uh, are off limits to a lot of the commanders who can't could have the most fun with this effect. And it's just another one of these cards that makes me sympathize with Mark Ro- Rosewater's position that color identity like cuts against the fundamental principles of magic design. Um, I, I promise not to say that for the rest of the episode at least, but you know, I just like something about this card kind of bums me out in, in a way. I was I was trying to figure out like what are people trying to do with colossification given that you know it's it's in a color that's not uh super aura heavy or at least kind of aura manipulation heavy uh and it seems to just sort of the goal in those decks seem to just be to kind of make a cool attacking thing big which you know i i can respect that but you know the fact that colossification does nothing beyond that is kind of a bummer yeah it is cute with like uh solvala and other a handful of other things that generate um mana for example based on a creature's power so you know there's there's a few cute things you can do in green here but nothing like you could do in say red and white with their aura equipment synergies right what's your rating on this one connor uh classification's a d for me it's not quite in the f range of just being a garbage card but you know it just doesn't doesn't really excite me maybe i'm jaded too yeah i'm also a jaded d sorry classification all right i think this one is uh an easy f for both of us yeah. mythic proportions for ggg enchantment aura enchant creature Enchanted creature gets plus eight, plus eight, and has trample. That's it. The The flavor text isn't even worth reading. The art isn't worth saying anything about, except that it's very green and not very good. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't have much to say about this. I, I can't say I can help much here because my only comment in our notes is just ugly, uh, which, which I guess <laughs> I can expand there. <laughs> I can expand on a bit, but the art on this is like super, super ugly. It's like peak onslaught, like gross, bulgy, contrasty picture, but it's also like super muddy. It's almost like there's like, it's like an onslaught creature, but like on top of an alpha background, like there's just, mm-hmm. it's just, it's just not a nice piece of art. There's just nothing that's compelling about it. He certainly doesn't look like he's getting plus eight, plus eight, unless this is like the very beginning phases of it. Like it's just a centaur with some green vines running across it. That seems like maybe a plus two to me. Definitely not a plus eight, plus eight. Yeah, his. I guess one of his fists is getting big and glowing. Yeah, you, you, I think you got to hand it to the colossification artist, for example, for like, this is a cat that's as big as a skyscraper, whereas this guy is like, this is a centaur with one big glowing spirit fist. <laughs> Which gives him triple. Yeah. Hmm. Well, this is an F for me. Oh, yeah, easy F. Should we move on? <laughs> Let's move on. All right. Sorry to... All the Mythic Proportions fans out there, if you have fond memories of Mythic Proportions from 2002, let us know. All right, let's talk about Sandworm Convergence. Sandworm Convergence is 6GG for an enchantment. Creatures with flying can't attack you or planeswalkers you control. At the beginning of your end step, create a 5-5 green worm creature token. And the flavor text? Cantankerous and territorial, sandworms claim even the skies above their dunes. This is a super cool card. This is uh, one of my favorite cards from Amonkhet. And looking at it just made me reflect on how many cards there are from Amonkhet that are kind of contenders for some of my favorite cards. It's shown up a bunch in this pair of episodes on 7 plus mana enchantments. We have Cruel Reality. We have Swarm Intelligence, Overwhelming Splendor. It's got all kinds of fun mid-power cube cards like Oncrop Crasher, Cartouche of Solidarity, Gideon of the Trials, all of the embalmed creatures. Like the list goes on and on. And I feel like Amonkhet is kind of a, you don't hear that much about it. like. 
Wizards doesn't talk about it much. You don't hear people say, oh, Amonkhet, that's one of the all-time greats, like Ravnica or something. But I feel like it it sort of sneakily is one of the all-time greats. Like it's full of these balanced cards that do interesting things without being like keyword soup or super power crept. Like it's, it's just a great block. And I realize that's not a review of Sandworm Convergence, but I think this card is a great example of that. Like this is not an all-star card in terms of power level and it's earned three reprints and it shows up in lots of casual EDH decks. And for all I know, low power cubes because it's a fun card. Like it's a, just a cool card that does something really thematic. It does it in a really clean, straightforward way. Even if you've never put in it, put it in a deck like I haven't, it makes you want to put it in a deck. It's just a super cool card. Speaking of thematic though, I love that the flavor text here is is explaining the part about creatures with flying not being able to attack you or planeswalkers you control. It feels a little bit defensive, doesn't it? It does. It like well, you you would read it without getting to the flavor text. You're thinking how how are the sandworms protecting me from flyers? <laughs> I guess the art suggests it a little bit. It shows this sandworm like lunging out of the the desert to eat a bird. <laughs> it's like pr- protecting you from flying creatures is not the first thing that would come to my mind for sandworms, especially since the worms don't have reach. Uh, yeah, they, they really should have reach. And I guess they, if they did, then this card, would, it wouldn't be OP, but it would be like more obnoxious than I think it intends to be. Like they, I think the intent is there is some way to kind of sneak in a final advantage against the uh, the worms. But yeah, there is kind of like, I know, I guess that doesn't work. I, I don't know why they don't have reach, Connor. They should just have reach. Right. Maybe maybe uh, when at the beginning of your end step, they come out of the desert and they can no longer um, reach that high. Well, I mean, so it, let's let's approach it from a different di- di- direction. So Amonkhet is a top down set. This is clearly a top down Dune card. Like this card is like the sandworms from Dune. The sandworms from Dune do attack some flying machines at one point. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. um I guess that helps sell it. Yeah, it, it is a little bit confusing that this is like this is like opposite moat stapled to making a 5-5 five, five every turn. But you know what? I, I still like it. I'm still here for it. I like it too. And what I most of all like it as is a combo with Form of the Dragon. <laughs> Got him. Dra- dragons plus worms equals unkillable. Plus it's super cool. Like you're bo- you're you're zapping them for five every turn. You're making giant worms to hold down the ground. Like you're unstoppable. Yes, you're a, you're a dragon. You are the dragon protected by a bunch of giant sandworms. What could be better than that? <laughs> That's super cool. You command the skies and the sand. And in the most tinny colors. I want to go ramp into that. Like, I don't think that's a good deck, but that <laughs> makes me want to go, like, put that deck together. I <laughs> know. Uh, what's your tier? What's your ranking on this thing, Connor? I'm I'm just an easy A. Like it's not quite to S tier for me. It doesn't have the like special sauce, but it's it's a solid A for me. This is a cool card. Yeah, yeah. This is an A for me too. I've never uh, actually managed to to play it in any context, but you know, it's the kind of card I would love to resolve and then maybe still lose, but have a good time doing it. Yeah, that sounds about right. This is in seventeen thousand EDH decks, so I assume someone has cast it at some point. I mean, I, I'm kind of with you in that I never have, even though I've had one for many years and I look at it with great fondness. Um, but somebody out there is casting this and I presume they're having a great time. I hope so. Okay, move on to a very similar card, Spawning Grounds. Six GG for an enchantment aura. Enchant Land. Enchanted Land has tap, put a 5-5 five, five green beast creature token with trample onto the battlefield. So this is... Definitely a bit of a bummer after Sandworm Convergence, just in in terms of how awesome or not awesome the cards are. Um, But I guess the beasts here have Trample. 
It doesn't give you the protection from flying. It does enchant a land, uh, which needs to be tapped to get your beast creature token. So you're taking a land out of play. I'm not sure how much that really matters once you're at eight mana. It's just sort of a, a less exciting sandworm convergence to me. Yeah, I had the same reaction and I'm curious why. Like, what is it that... Uh, so I instinctively felt like this is a this is a kind of an underwhelming card after sandworm convergence. But like, why is that? Why does this card feel more lame? Honestly, I think maybe because it has less text for me. It doesn't yeah. give you the the protection from creatures with flying, which you know, I think is probably not the main appeal of Sandworm Convergence, but it's just this kind of cool, strange uh, bonus effect that you get. Um, Spawning Grounds feels, yeah, just like less less cool because it's not worms, maybe. I think that's all right. And I think there are two other things that kind of make this less cool. I think one is that it's kind of more like nine mana rather than eight because you have to pay eight, but then you have to stick it on a land and commit a land to it. So it's really more like nine. Hmm. And I think somehow the fact that you have to tap the land, like it's like you have to put work into it, right? It's like with the convergence, you just get it for free. Every turn, whatever I do, I get a free worm. Whereas this thing, it's like, oh, I got to I gotta use a land. Even though in many ways using a land is better, right? Because you could do hijinks to tap and untap the land. But And I mean, it is a lot of work just physically to turn that, that's a great that land sideways. That's a great point. Yeah, I, I once I get to eight mana, I don't want to have to tap anything anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it just, I want it automatically. Yeah, I just want to tap creatures at that point. Don't make me turn land sideways. Especially in green. The art here is like really weird. It's got this sort of hyper-realistic, but also really fantastical quality to it that almost makes it look like a collage or something. Like the colors are really exaggerated, but there's a ton of detail packed in and these beasts are like pretty gross. Like it's it's just a really strange piece of art. To me, I almost get, gives me a vibe of like, um, like a splash screen and again, Heroes of Might and Magic 3 or something. Like it looks like a piece of like slush fantasy art from the early 2000s. I don't really mean that in a disrespectful way to the artist in this case. Like, I think it's kind of cool. It's just really strange. Austin is really on a Heroes of Might and Magic kick right now. It's it's literally all I can think about, Connor. <laughs> Something about this art, for some reason, reminds me of like a, like a really pulpy, the cover of a really pulpy sci-fi novel. Like if you replace uh, this beast in the foreground with uh, like a guy in a, a muscled man retro or a muscled man in like a retro space suit to it. Yeah. Or just a muscled man in there somewhere looking across the water, I guess at these kind of freaky, not very well-defined beasts further away. It has kind of, you know, alien planet vibes. Yeah. It's like a seventies reissue of John Carter of Mars or yes. something. But also the art is part of this, but just overall the the flavor and kind of concept of this card is sort of off-putting to me. The name, Spawning Grounds, the art, a bunch of beasts like hanging out around this watering hole, and the flavor text all suggest that like what's happening in this card is beasts are getting together and they're <laughs> spawning, right? Making more, making more beasts. Making more beasts. On so, your land. <laughs> on my land. I have to give up my land for it. I'm trying to get into a sanctuary for these beasts. But does this mean that each turn in a game of magic is at least as long as a gestation period <laughs> of one of these boar beasts? Uh, maybe you get a bunch of infants and one of them reaches maturity each year. You, you get a bunch of juvenile ones. So each turn is a year? Um, yeah. I, hmm. <laughs> I think we need a lore fact check on this. <laughs> Maybe it's a really, it's not just this whole, this, uh, this uh, watering hole. It's like a, a gigantic refuge that you're taking over mm -hmm. and forcing the beast to go fight for you. 
Mm-hmm. You know, that might also be part of the Heroes of Might and Magic connection. Now I think about it, like spawning grounds definitely sounds like a building in Heroes of Might and Magic. <laughs> it does. You'd get... And spawning is what your units do each week. So Yes. Hmm. So uh, where where does all of that leave you on spawning <laughs> oh, I grounds? Like, I feel like we talked about everything but the playability of this card. I have this at like an E and I think that's harsh. I think I just, I came off Sandworm Convergence and I was... I was feeling froggy. I wanted to defend my boy, my boys, the sandworm. So I, I have it in E, but I'm going to rate y- yank it all the way up to a B. Wow. Yeah. Just because I, you know what? I like how it's gross. Okay. I had it at a C, but I'll, I will match your B um, for these, <laughs> these boar things. B for boar beast. <laughs> B, B, for, B for boar beast. Hello. Okay. Let's talk about, uh, I believe our newest card uh, in this episode, the world spell. Um, from Dominaria United. The world spell is 5GG for an enchantment saga. It's got read ahead, which as a reminder means choose a chapter and start with that many lore counters. Add one after your draw step. Skip chapters. Don't trigger. Chapters one and two. Look at the top seven cards of your library. You may reveal a non-saga permanent card from among them and put it into your hand. Put the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order. And three... Put up to two non-saga permanent cards from your hand onto the battlefield. Okay, so seven mana, two times you get to look at the top seven and grab a permanent. Third time you get to put two of those into play. Uh, This card is very cool. I I don't have that much to say about it, but to me, this is basically like kind of a better and worse tooth and nail uh, in a lot of ways. Um, And I like that. I love tooth and nail. It's a cool, iconic kind of classic card from my early magic playing days. This has that same sort of feel of power. I don't love the art on this thing. It's like pretty confusing what's even going on here. It kind of reminds me of, Connor, do you remember that Faithless looting um, from, I want to say Strixhaven Mystical Archive that looked like a collage and um, the art just got kind of crucified on Reddit to the extent I sort of felt bad for the artist. Anyway, this this guy looks like the sibling of the guy in that awkward faithless looting. Um, so that to me wow, is one knock against this it. card. Like I don't hate it, but I I don't I don't love the art. But I think the card itself is pretty cool. Wow, that uh, I'm just looking at faithless listing. I, Are you seeing encountering this live faithless, for the faithless first time? looting? I can't I can't stop looking at it. <laughs> oh, um. Anyway, the world <laughs> spell. God, it's just frozen. <laughs> the world spell. <laughs> I feel like this card has oh oh you wanted to talk about the art yeah um <laughs> it is pretty pretty strange it's it's hard to tell what what story is being told here or what this has to like what the world spell is you know most most sagas i think have pretty exceptional art where a, a sort of at least the idea of a story is being conveyed often in sort of an unusual not abstract but kind of more like less less realistic art style, right? Maybe a mosaic or like a traditional painting or something that doesn't have the look of a typical magic card. This one just seems like a, a very strange looking guy who maybe has an eye patch and uh, is laying in a garden, I guess. And I just don't, I don't see the connection to anything that's happening on the actual card. So um, as you discovered Faithless Looting from Mystical Archive Live, um, let me read you what the world spell is because I had to look it up and then let's see if we find the art any better. The world spell was cast by the Planeswalker Freilis in 2934 AR to break the shard and end the Ice Age on Dominaria. Freilis' world spell started a new age known as the Thaw. 
Hydar tried to stop the effect of that spell and to cover the world with ice again. Classic Hadar. Yeah, he's he's such a jerk. You know, honestly, I still feel like with that, like, I mean, you definitely get the sense of kind of renewal and creation from this art. I don't know that there's anything in it that sort of makes me specifically think like, oh, the ice ice was here and now it's gone or anything. It's just like kind of a green, abstract green card art. That I guess that does, that story makes sense with uh, mechanics though, that you're, you know, maybe thawing out some non-saga permanence and then putting <laughs> okay. them into play. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the world is kind of coming back to life again. Like things are happening in the world again in a way they haven't been for the last couple uh, millennia. Okay, okay. Uh, huh. This this card rang a bell for me when I was looking at it and I um, remembered why. Uh, so Saffron Olive used this in a, a blue-green standard deck a couple of months ago with Titan of Industry and Holebreaker Horror as sort of the, the permanence that you're hoping to pull out with the world spell. Which seemed, it seemed like a kind of fun, unusual deck, but I don't think that this card has much applicability at all outside of a deck that's sort of built around it in that way that, you know, is just trying to get you these very expensive creatures uh, that have a really big impact on the board as soon as they come in. There are, there are certainly more of those in Magic than there were when we started playing, but I think outside of a deck that's like built for the world spell, you know, for example, a singleton cube deck. I don't know that the world spell does much of anything. Yeah, I think I'm one of the few people who's really excited by this card. Like, I've looked around on Reddit to try to find people excited about this for cube uh, besides me, and I haven't really found anyone. Like, I can't find any evidence of anyone really playing this card or doing much with it. I think it's very fun uh, just because I like because I like value so much, and this card represents a lot of value. Um, so I have it as an A, but honestly, that feels generous because, I don't know, it's it's fun, but it's not... It doesn't do anything that exciting, um, so I, I think A might be too generous, honestly. Yeah, I've got it as I've got it at a C. I feel like B or C is about right for this. Like it can do something cool and like fairly predictable in the right kind of deck, but just not that exciting. All right, I'll go down to C. Alrighty. Okay, our last green card is Zendikar Resurgent. Five GG for an enchantment. Whenever you tap a land for mana, add one mana to your mana pool of any type that land produced. And whenever you cast a creature spell, draw a card. This honestly is one of my least favorite cards in this episode, even though it is very popular in Commander. It's in 5% of all decks on EDH rec. That's all decks, not just green decks. Right, 48,000 decks. Yeah. So pretty popular card. I think easily the most popular one out of all the enchantments we've talked about in both of these episodes. But it just doesn't do anything for me. The name and the art here are just completely uninspiring. The art is just some people standing on a cliff. Well, it's, the, it's the Gatewatch, Connor. It's Jason, Chandra. Okay. All, right, it's, and all right, it's some people. It's the Gatewatch. They're looking at a... <laughs> okay, same thing. It's true. Cliff on the ground. <laughs> there are some, some place walkers, some people. Same thing. But but why, why is them standing there a seven mana enchantment? So that kind of bothers me. Is the seven mana enchantment the giant green glyph on the ground beneath them that, that none of them are looking at? <laughs> Maybe. Is the glyph Zendikar resurging? <laughs> I mean, the name here feels like it should be a sorcery or something. Like, you know, do you know what I mean? You know what I'm getting uh, at? I totally do. I, I have this at a D, but it's, I, I kind of want to make it an F. Uh, and the reason I want to make it an F is not because it's a bad card. It's clearly not. There's just something so bland about it. Like the art, as you said, is is bland. It's like there, there's always been a lot of complaining about the Gatewatch. I don't hate the Gatewatch as much as many Magic Super fans do. But I do, 
I do find them sort of bland. And then this art, they look really bland. They're just like some people standing on a cliff. And the card itself is just like, hey, whenever you do a thing that like a green deck does, like it get get some get some value, whatever. Like it, it doesn't, there's no challenge here. There's no interest. It's just like, yeah, put it into a deck that does green things and it'll be fine. There's nothing wrong with that, but I it's just it's just such a flat design. Like if you compare it to something like Heartbeat of Spring, right? 2G, whenever a player taps a land for mana, they add another of those mana. Like that's an interesting card, right? That says like, can you break this before your opponent does? Like that poses a puzzle to you. This card is just like, just a card, just a, just a boring piece of green cardboard. Yeah, yeah. I think the problem is there's, there is nothing bad about it. It just, you know, it takes, it takes the things you're already doing and just makes them better. Right. It doesn't it doesn't encourage you to really play any differently. It doesn't set anything up that you need to like work around or work toward. It just improves what you already want to be doing. Yeah, it doesn't push your deck in any particular direction. Right. There's like tons of cards, especially since this card was printed. Right. That that just like uh, reward you for doing a thing. Right. Like that's the thing Magic loves to do today. But uh, most of them at least make you do some kind of work, right? They push you into some kind of archetype. They're like, you're a saga deck. You're a curses deck. You're um, a like toughness matters deck, right? This is just like, you're a green deck. And that's that's not that great. I, I, I do think some of the problem here is flavor too. Like I, I, I hesitate to admit this, but Zendikar is probably my least favorite plane. I find everything about Zendikar boring, um, except the Eldrazi. And I find this art incredibly boring. And I think like if this card was like had a better name and art. I do think I might like this card a little bit more. I don't think I'd love it, but I think I can I can imagine a version of myself that's like, oh, this thing's so big, it does so much thing. Um, if it if it had a flavor that appealed to me more. I know, because it is so big and it does so much thing. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? There's so much thing. Yeah. It's E at best for I feel like I feel like I can't give it an F because it's clearly not bad. Yeah. So E feels like the right right place to land well don't you think this is another one where we're trying to teach wizards of the coast a lesson though oh, i mean that's where that's what we're always <laughs> doing on this show it's <laughs> trying that's a big to... part of why we do this show is to help them help them be better right share our wisdom uh yeah e seems fine i mean objectively this okay let's connor let's give it two ratings i want i think one rating that's like playability suitability for a deck and the other one is a personal rating this is going to break our systems i i know i'm well the the yeah, I know. So I'm going to give this like on playability, like an S to an A. Like this is clearly a super playable card, objectively. Uh-huh. But my personal rating is an F. I, I don't like anything about this card. Okay. S-A-F. S-A-F. Okay, great. This is an S-A-F. Let's move, let's move on. Okay. Let's talk about a much more fun card. Captive Audience from uh, Ravnica Allegiance. Captive Audience is 5BR. For an enchantment, captive audience enters the battlefield under the control of an opponent of your choice. At the beginning of your upkeep, choose one that hasn't been chosen. Your life total becomes four. Discard your hand. Each opponent creates five 2-2 black zombie creature tokens. This is maybe one of my favorite cards on this entire list. Um, It's just such a cool, splashy effect. Um, It's basically a curse that's not a curse. Um, I kind of like that it's not a curse. Uh, Somehow it just like seems to carve out a little bit of a design space. Uh, It's distinct. To me, it's essentially, um, what is the card, uh, the Liliana card that gives you three good decisions and then a really bad one? It's like a black enchantment that uh, lets you makes you choose something that hasn't been chosen. Do you know what I'm talking about? I do, but I can't remember the name or what any of the choices are. Uh, uh, Demonic Pact. 
yeah, this is like a reverse demonic pact where all the choices are bad. And like giving your opponent a set of bad choices where they have to choose is just all kinds of delightful, right? It's more fun than if you chose what bad fate uh, results for them because you, you get to sort of cackle and uh, like steeple your fingertips and, and feel clever. Yeah, I, I really like this card. The first the first thing that came to mind when I was reading this was Choice of Damnations, uh-huh. uh, which is... You might need to read that one out. <laughs> I think I will need to read that one out. Uh, probably slightly less known. Choice of Damnations is a Saviors of Kamigawa Sorcery that costs six mana, 5B. Um, target opponent chooses a number. You may have that player lose that much life. If you don't, that player sacrifices all but that many permanents. Which is similar to Captive Audience in that it's making your opponent make an unpleasant choice. Obviously a lot worse than Captive Audience. See, I'm interested that you like this because you hate like um, factor fiction type effects. So what is it about this that you like when you ordinarily don't like those kind of make your opponent choose kind of effects? I do. I do hate factor fiction type effects. And I was thinking of factor fiction when I rated this card and trying to figure out why, what do I like about this that I don't like about factor fiction? And I think what I like about captive audience is that it it gives your opponent these two two very bad choices one pretty bad choice discard your hand you know sometimes that's not going to hurt you that much it, it's not immediately destroying them or taking them out of the game but it's it's coming close and it's it's putting them in a really painful position and it's just kind of cool that it's like effectively their enchantment well i guess it it is their enchantment under their control factor fiction is more it's it's making your opponent choose <laughs> Like choose sort of your plays or your potential plays based on kind of incomplete information, which is interesting in a way, but to me somehow less fun than a card like Captive Audience, where they're just sort of seeing this doom clock tick down as they run out of choices and each one is worse than the last. I don't know how to fully capture it, but I I, I think Captive Audience creating that sort of sense of impending doom is what makes it such a fun card to me. Yeah, I, this is one of those weird cards where I don't have that much to say purely because I like the card so much. Like, there's nothing to critique here. It's just cool uh, and fun. It makes me want to play a game Magic. So it's like an easy S tier to me. Yeah, I've got an S as well. Though I will say, the flavor is a bit confusing to me. I agree. So it's a Rakdos card, and it shows an audience that, I mean, none of them look like they're having a good time. <laughs> So it's a bit confusing, like, is your opponent part of the the captive audience here? Are they in the show that is causing all this, like, blood to be spilled on the captive audience? Not really clear what's going on here, but still cool. Yeah, I find that a little confusing, too, because there's a whole bunch of other cards that apply imply somewhat disturbingly that, like, people want to go to Rakdos shows for fun. And uh, which has never made a whole lot of sense to me because they sound uh, disgusting. But it's at least consistent. And then this one card is like, no, I guess they just gather people in to watch these things. And then those people suffer as part of the uh, proceedings. It's a, it's a little confusing. Yeah. And where are the zombies coming into this? That's a great question. There are no zombies. I guess the audience are being turned into zombies. Yikes. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, two fun little notes about this art. One of them is if you zoom in, Fibblethip is in the art uh, trying to cover his or looking between the finger his fingers with his one eye sitting on the shoulder of an Azorius soldier, which I think is totally wonderful. And actually this whole That's art, the, I think the theme of an audience gives gave the artist a great excuse to show a bunch of different types of Ravnikans. And I, I love that. It's a nice bit of kind of set like world building here. Yeah. Uh, and then one other bit of trivia. This is one of many, many cards that have been censored in Arena, specifically for mainland China. 
um, where like blood and skeletons and gore are uh, very much frowned on by the censors. And so there's a like blood free, much milder version of this art uh, in the Chinese version of arena. And I'll link an example of that for any super nerds like me. I love that uh, skeletons are in that category. Yeah, I've, I've always, we got it. I'm very curious about that. We'll have to dive into that sometime. On our skeleton special. <laughs> oh my goodness. Capturing that for the backlog. Uh, this is an easy S tier for me though, Connor. Yeah, S. Okay. Uh, I've got another Ravnica card coming up here, uh, but a much older Ravnica. Debtor's Nell. Four hybrid white black mana. I don't know a good way to say that. It's four colorless mana and three hybrid white black mana for an enchantment. Uh, at the beginning of your upkeep, put target creature card in a graveyard into play under your control. This is from Guild Pact. The flavor text says, one moment conscious only of a sense of repose. The next moment, hearing the trudge of his own footsteps. He sighed and squinted into the glare ahead. So this card really brings back some some memories for me. This Guild Pact was our very first exposure to Orzov. It's when the guild was first introduced. Uh, and kind of the first introduction of this really strong dual color identity of white-black, being very graveyard-oriented, reanimating things. Um, a lot of the other Orzhov cards that were printed in Guild Pact, you know, do a little bit of draining, causing your opponent to lose a little bit of life here, a little bit of life there. You gain that life back. And Debtor's Nell feels like it it fits perfectly into that archetype and is also this great, huge sort of finisher to a game for an Orzhov deck. Yeah, I love this card. This is one of my uh, all-time favorite cards. Um, there's, there's a lot I like about it. Like one is... Um, from a mechanical perspective, it's just a great card. Uh, like it's iconic, it's splashy, but it's also super, super simple. Like it just does one thing. Uh, that thing is really easy to understand. That thing is intuitively powerful and makes you feel powerful uh, when you do it, which is like what I want in a seven mana enchantment. It's also a good example of like what hybrid mana is meant to do, which is to say like when a card's hybrid, it's tempting to sort of read it as just a gold card, but this isn't, right? It can be a fully white or fully black card unless it's a commander which disrespects Magic's uh, color system. And the reason that this is hybrid is because white can do this on its own and black can do this on its own and they can also do it together. And so I like this card uh, as a really good example of what hybrid is meant to do in Magic. It's meant to illustrate something that can belong wholly to either color um, or, uh, and is shared design space between them. That's a great point. One other thing I'll say and, and, that I love about this card is, and really this podcast is I feel like every episode or two we're reminded like just how good an artist Kev Walker is for magic. <laughs> Kev Walker has done like 479 cards in the history of magic and they're almost all really good. Like he's got this kind of tremendous stylistic range. Like if you go look up this card and then look up dragon tyrant, Wrath of God and Dreamborn Muse. Like all of those cards were printed within just a few years of each other. They all display totally different styles. They're all really loyal to kind of like the world building and set Bible of the set that they come from. I feel like Kev Walker, I mean, obviously everyone knows he's one of the great magic artists, but you don't hear his name that often because I think he kind of turns in these, they're not workmanlike, that's that's too harsh, but he turns in these pieces that are kind of very of the set, um, but that really make sets work. They give magic a kind of coherent, or cohesive uh, sense of identity. And anyway, all that to say, shout out to Kev Walker. This is another great Kev Walker piece that I think really makes this card. Like this card would still be cool with lesser art, but I think the like really powerful, iconic, almost abstract art on this uh, really uh, helps sell the card. Yeah. Yep. I can't can't add to that. That is spot on. The, the flavor text, the name, the art, especially here, just all work together so well. So you may have guessed I'm an S tier because uh, just based on me gushing about this card, where do you land, Connor? So I've got it 
at an A. This card has never been as special for me as it has for you. Debtor's Nell also kind of, it suffers from that drawback of not doing anything until the beginning of your next upkeep, which is a pretty big drawback on a seven mana card. Obviously, this was printed in a time when there was much less of an expectation of an immediate payoff, even from an expensive card like this. If you have a big effect on an older card like this, you probably are not getting it right away. So it's not out of place, but you know it, it makes debtors now uh, a little struggle a little bit in comparison to more modern cards. Yeah, I, I think you're onto something there. And to be honest, even back in the day, like I played this in plenty of casual uh, magic games actually against you. And it, it, it kind of disappointed even in like 2005 casual like kitchen table magic. Like it reads really powerful, but this card never quite delivers in the way it looks like it's going to. Yeah, yeah. You just, you know, there's kind of conditions to meet. You got to have enough creatures in the graveyard to make this make sense. You need to survive long enough to be able to do nothing on turn seven. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's an A for me. Still a super cool card, but, you know, I I don't think it really gets there on power. Yeah, I'm, fi- I'm fine with an A on this thing. Okay. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to ruin your memories. No, I, I think you're right. I think it is objectively an A, an A card, not quite an S. All right. And we are nothing if not objective with our card ratings. <laughs> yes, absolutely. That's the whole reason we do this. It's to get to the objective truth about each of these cards. Mm-hmm. All right, let's talk about Cloven Casting, a card so exciting I just realized one of us forgot to rate it. Uh, Cloven Casting is 5UR for an enchantment from uh, Conflux, I believe. Whenever you play a multicolored instant or sorcery spell, you may pay one. If you do, copy that spell. You may choose new targets for the copy. Uh, there, there's very little to get excited about with this card. Uh, we had a card in our last seven mana enchantments episode called Swarm Intelligence, which is six U that just copies every incident sorcery you spell you cast. Uh, no mana needed, no multicolored restriction. And considering that card is like not exactly amazing, like it's just really hard to get it all excited about Cloven casting. This is just a pretty bad card. And to my mind, not a particularly interesting one. Like, the payoff of like warping your whole deck around gold instants and sorceries so you can pay to copy them is like not not that great. Yeah, the uh, Swarm Intelligence from our last seven mana enchantment episode was sort of felt like a sequel to an older card called Cast Through Time, which is another seven mana blue enchantment. Gives your instant and sorceries uh, rebound, which is exile the spell as it resolves. If you cast it from your hand at the beginning of your next upkeep, you can cast it from exile without paying its mana cost. Swarm Intelligence is kind of a level up on Cast Through Time. Cloven Casting feels like uh, probably even worse than Cast Through Time. Yeah, I think this is just bad by comparison. Also, I have no idea what is like what's supposed to be happening in this card from the art yes. and the flavor text. Like it looks like maybe some elves are getting blasted with some kind of double crystal laser beam and then the flavor text says, "Let us flee to the deep jungle. Our city is no longer safe." And I suspect neither is the fallback retreat. So, so do, does that mean one laser is going for the <laughs> the city and the other one's going for the fallback retreat? So they're they're running to the jungle. Thank you for reading the flavor text. I forgot to read it in this case, probably because it feels like it belongs on a different card. Like the flavor text on this just makes like a it's really stiff writing to me. It's like, let us flee to the deep jungle. Like it just sounds super, super stiff and awkward. It seems to have almost nothing to do with the effect, except I guess 
the city and the fallback retreat were <laughs> they hit got by the, the same multicolored retreat. spell. I find the name here kind of awkward too, of like Cloven casting. Like, yeah, yeah, I get it. Cloven too. But it's like, it's kind of too clever to the point that it loops back around to just being stiff. Yep. And as you said, the art here is just like, I mean, I guess it works for this. I mean, it doesn't not work, but it's certainly not selling the card. Yeah. And it would, it would kind of work for so many things that it, it comes, it comes full circle again and doesn't work here. Yeah, this might actually, I'm scrolling back. I believe this is like the second cheapest card we've talked about in all of these episodes at 22 cents um, with no reprints. Uh, sorry, third cheapest after Lay Claim, which was an uncommon um, and bad and Touch of the Eternal, which is super bad. Um, and I think there's a reason this is ultra cheap. And that reason is because like this card is just sort of fundamentally unlovable. Yeah, it sure is. So I'm an F on this card. Okay, uh, so I I was so unexcited about this that I didn't even rate it and didn't notice that I didn't rate it. So I think my rating now on the spot is going to be 22 cents. <laughs> all right, let's rate this card as 22 cents. I think that says it all. <laughs> okay, slight slight improvement here. Uh, we have Yavi Maya's Embrace. 5GUU for an enchantment aura, enchant creature. You control enchanted creature. And it gets plus two, plus two, and has trample. And this is from, uh, what set is this? Apocalypse. So quite old. I like that this card kind of does this melding of really classic blue and green aura effects. It's it's control magic for blue, plus uh, buffing and trampling for green. But the eight mana price tag on this seems pretty unplayable. Yeah, it's kind of an astonishing price tag. Because like control magic, right? Been around since alpha. It's two UU. It's four mana. Now it's pretty good at four mana in some formats. It's never quite too good, but it can be annoying or have a, a negative effect on certain metas. But then apparently you're paying three and a G for plus two, plus two and trample. And that just seems egregious. Like I don't really understand how the cost landed here. I feel like this could be like seven mana. I mean, honestly, could even be like six or perhaps even five mana with a restrictive enough casting cost. Like the casting cost on this thing is just way out of whack. It's sort of like a control magic plus ranker with like two extra toughness thrown in. And when you think <laughs> of it that way, mana. yeah, when you, th- when you think of it that way, three, three more mana for two extra toughness, it uh, looks pretty rough. Speaking of looking rough, uh, the art on this is something else. So I kind of had to look at this several times to figure out what's going on. Do you want to try to describe it for us? I recommend looking it up because I'm not going to convey the awkwardness of this art. But basically, this art is an ordinary looking human dressed as kind of a Roman gladiator. I say dressed as because honestly, he looks like he might be like a reenactor or a cosplayer. He's not really inhabiting the role. But anyway, it's this guy getting yanked off the ground by like five modestly sized vines. uh, And he's like looking pretty freaked out about it and he is ineffectively slashing at his former companion's shield and if i sound down on it it's because it just doesn't work like nothing about this looks like i guess it looks like he's being taken over sort of it certainly doesn't look like he's getting plus two plus two and trample like nothing about this gives me the sense of strength or power or even overwhelming control it's just sort of comedic and silly yeah very very awkward The, the whole thing feels like a like a poorly staged play with like some really bad problems. <laughs> like this guy's just like sort of being... community theater. Yeah. Yeah. It's a community theater, like betrayal of the Roman gladiators or something. The, the vines that are embracing 
this soldier are very skinny. So I don't see yeah. where this plus two plus two is coming in at all. Let alone trample. He can't. He's not even leaving this tree. <laughs> yeah, exactly. How is he trampling? It's just like walk ten feet feet further away. Who is he trampling? He's held. He's held up above the ground. Yeah, that's a great point. You saying embrace and us talking about green auras made me think: Is this like a callback? And I, it might be a callback to Gaia's embrace from uh, Urza's saga, which is two GG enchanted creature gets plus three plus three trample and has G regenerate. Um, except the guy's embrace is like massively better in every way. I wonder if there's some chance that this used to give the Gaia's embrace like plus three plus three trample and regenerate or something. That would seem much more reasonable for the cost. Yeah, that that feels like it would be about where it should be. I bet it is a callback. Let's let's call it a callback. Yeah. A failed callback. Yeah, if if any of our listeners know that to be true or untrue, let us know. How would you rate this uh, this wonderful card? Yeah, I, I, we had a similar disconnect around late claim where I just like stealing things. So I gave this an E instead of an F, but honestly, that even an E might be generous. Yeah, I, I give it an F. <laughs> I just, this is so expensive. The, honestly, the only thing I really like about this card is its weird mana cost. Yeah, I, I think you're right. It's, I mean, even the art, I mean, like, I, I can't say I like it. I think it's funny, but it's it's also terrible. I think them putting this in, like, Mystery Booster is just mean. I'm surprised they haven't put it on the list yet. Thank goodness they haven't. I do think it being in Double Masters is an uncommon. I can see this as a bad uncommon in the right set. It being kind of fun. Yeah, yeah. I, I Something to work towards. I appreciate that the art is unchanged. Yeah, well, it's, it wouldn't make sense to pay someone <laughs> to do new art for this card. no. All right, let's give it an F. All right. Let's close on a little bit of a higher note. It's another aura. Eldrazi Conscription. Eight. Tribal Enchantment. Eldrazi Aura. Enchant Creature. Enchanted Creature gets plus 10, plus 10, and has Trample and Annihilator 2. And the flavor text? The barest taste of Eldrazi power shatters both realms and identities. All right, now this is a card. I'm so glad we get to end on this. Uh, this is a just an amazing, to me, extremely lovable card. Um, one of the things I really like about it is it's pretty much unique in almost every dimension. Uh, the type line of tribal enchantment Eldrazi Aura is obviously like extra, extra unique. Wizards doesn't do tribal anymore. They definitely have never put all these words together. It's kind of got an Urza Saga level of weirdness to it. Um, the effect is obviously super unique. Like this makes a creature really big, but in a way that is, I think, much splashier than say Mythic Proportions or some of the other make bigger cards we've talked about. Uh, and even the casting cost is unique. This is uh, the only colorless aura in the entire game. I'm not counting Devoid cards. Those don't count. Um, so this is just like such a unique card and such an impressive card. It's like it it makes you feel powerful. It makes your creature into like a super powered ultimate card. It's got great art. Like this is just a, a perfect card to my mind. Yeah, and it feels like it was really pushing the boat out in a lot of ways for a card that was printed in 2010. I mean, it's yeah. got this this incredible full art from a time when that kind of thing was, I think, pretty much Eldrazi exclusive, maybe Planeswalkers as mm -hmm. well. But like, you were not seeing a lot of full art cards or extended art or any of the you know kind of cool various printings that we get nowadays. Um, so even just like the actual printing of the card itself is unusual and kind of unique. Yeah, it feels like something from Modern Horizons 2, not like something from 2010. I, I doubt anyone remembers 
this card that we talked about uh, within the last hour, but Mythic Proportions uh, from back in green, <laughs> the seven mana plus eight plus eight and Trample uh, looks even worse next to Eldrazi Conscription. Yeah, I mean, I don't have much more to say. It's just a perfect card. To me, this is an easy yes. I don't even care if it's playable. It's just, it's just a perfect piece of design. Easy yes for me. All right, let's call this an S tier. What a great note to end the episode on. All right, that is it for today's episode. Uh, And we hope this episode hasn't left you feeling like a captive audience. And that, in fact, you found this episode to be a positive hedonist trove of knowledge. Love it. (laughs) Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you can follow it on YouTube or your favorite podcast app. I think we're in just all of of the dang apps. Uh, As you may have noticed, our release schedule can be a little... um, intermittent so following us is a great way to ensure you don't miss an episode we also love your comments or emails you can email us clockspinningpodcast at gmail.com or comment on youtube or reddit let us know your thoughts and feedback are any of these cards your pet cards are any of these cards that you've actually played which i feel like is sometimes a gap with these kind of pet cards they don't actually make it into decks and we also are curious uh we are getting back into heroes of might and magic 3 and we i have a suspicion that like 50 percent of our listeners have played heroes of might and magic 3 so if you have let us know so that i win a bet next time we're planning to continue our betrayers of kamigawa review picking it up with blue part one until then though i'm austin and i'm connor thanks for listening <laughs>